today on Against the Grain. If emancipation is what we seek, what form should it take? How far can legal reforms and human rights decrees take us toward a better world? I'm CS. The law professor and environmental thinker Peter Burden examines the limits of what Marx called political emancipation. Coming right up. And this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. When the state legislates freedom or equality, progressives stand up and applaud. They celebrate legal reforms that favor members of marginalized groups. They applaud new rights decrees that apply to people previously left out of human rights regimes. And when courts or governments appeal to high-sounding ideals like those expressed in the French Revolution's Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen, people, many people, are heartened, encouraged, reassured. The question for today is, how far does all this get us? Do these sorts of measures, what Karl Marx called political emancipation, usher in real freedom and equality, or are they necessarily limited in their effect? Peter Burden is associate professor at Adelaide Law School in Australia. His research interests include political and environmental theory. In an article titled On the Limits of Political Emancipation and Legal Rights, Burden offers a new interpretation of Karl Marx's essay On the Jewish Question. Burden's article, published in the International Journal for the Semiotics of Law, is less about the so-called Jewish question and more about what Marx says the constitutional democracies of his time could and could not deliver in terms of true human emancipation. When Peter Burden and I connected recently, I asked what was the Jewish question at the time Marx wrote his essay in 1844. So the Jewish question, as Marx encounters it, is really what is the standing of Jews in European states? And that's a question whether or not the state is formally Christian, such as the Prussian state, or is sort of quasi-secular, as was the case in France. And alongside that question of their standing are a bunch of sort of sub-questions, like if the Jewish people are to be citizens, what kind? Um, if the Jews don't recognize the state's God, how can they do something practical, like swear an oath? Or if they don't recognize state law as being primary and instead have their own code of law, what do we do with them? Um, how do we integrate them? And in the 19th century, there were I guess, three dominant answers to that question. Um, the first is Jewish people can't be citizens because they're not universal men in the rights of man sense. Uh, the second really popular response is, yeah, they can be citizens, but they've got to give up their identity um, as being Jews. So we, we would regard that today as being a kind of an assimilation policy. And the third really popular response was that the state itself is the one with the problem and it should give up all its concern with religion. And then your religious identity simply won't matter to your ability to be a citizen of the state. The European states back then, were they concerned with religion such that the Jews were problematic in, in the eyes of these nation-state governments? Many were. So the Prussian state, for example, which is really uh, the most important one for the argument that Marx is making in the essay, is a formally Christian state. So um, the Christian God being uh, the one that is paramount. So there is a great deal of suspicion about people who have an allegiance to a different God and a different codified set of laws. Um, even though I think states today present themselves as being secular, it's not dissimilar to the kind of issues that have arisen around Islam and Sharia law and the sort of 
feelings or debates that have gone on in countries like the US, Australia or France about a minority group with an allegiance to a or primary allegiance to a different set of law. In this essay, Marx engages with a contemporary of his, a 19th century German philosopher named Bruno Bauer. What did Bruno Bauer believe about how Jewish people should present themselves to, to the state, act in relation to the state, so that their issues with the state, the problems they encountered vis-a-vis -vis the state, could be um, lessened or eliminated? Yeah, so as you say, Bruno Bauer is where Marx begins his analysis of the question, of the Jewish question. It's where he begins his essay. Bruno Bauer himself was a friend of Marx's, um, actually someone who worked really hard to try to get Marx a university post um, just before this essay was written. But Bauer's response to the Jewish question is really a combination of two ideas. The first is that um, in order to resolve the Jewish question, Jewish people must give up their identity or their very public and political identity as being Jews and just reserve religion as a private matter in the private sphere. So that's the first part of Bruno Bauer's solution. The second answer is that the state itself should become secular, formally secular, legally secular. And if that occurs, the matter or the question of someone's religious identity disappears as well. So if you like, Bruno Bauer is setting up a secular state and assimilation answer to the Jewish question. Marx begins this essay, again called On the Jewish Question, this way. The German Jews seek emancipation. What kind of emancipation do they want? Civic, political emancipation. Does Marx believe that Bruno Bauer understands what emancipation means? Well, for me, this, I think this is one of the most important parts of the entire essay. So Marx's opening sentence, which you've just read, because what he's doing is opening up the question and noticing that emancipation takes different forms. So Marx is going to say that Bruno Bauer understands what he terms political emancipation. And that's where you are formally or legally equal to everyone else. Marx doesn't think that's trivial, but he doesn't think it is as important as a different kind of question or a different kind of form of emancipation, which is what he calls true emancipation or real emancipation. So unlike Bruno Bauer, who is very much concerned with how we are represented at law uh, formally in constitutional states, Marx is actually interested in people's lived experience of emancipation. And he wants us not just to be free and equal formally, which is political emancipation, but actually to be free and equal. And he doesn't think Bruno Bauer um, appreciates that sort of emancipation. So one of, the, one of the first critiques Marx makes of Bauer is regarding Bauer's suggestion that should the state become secular, the question or the part of the Jewish question will disappear. And Marx subjects that idea to critique by pointing out, for example, that in states like America, which are formally secular, and there is that kind of political emancipation. Racism and the powers of division, the powers that separate us as people, continue to live, continue to thrive, and are also sanctioned by the state, which, although it purports to be neutral to matters of religion, actually is not. And so, in other words, political emancipation, according to Marx, is when and you kept using the word formal to say that people are formally free and equal in a society 
you mean, and I imagine he means that the state has sort of legislated, has decreed that people are equal and free, that, that it is a matter of the enactment of laws that this is the case, formally speaking, if not informally speaking? That's exactly right. So it's, it's legislation, or I guess for Marx, he's talking about in the context of the rights of man, right? So these big political statements, which are saying, you know, we are all free and equal and ought to have the same securities and protections of private property. So those kinds of large political and legal statements, which hold out the vision and the idea that we are equal in the eyes of the law. That's what political emancipation means for Marx. And so, I mean, part of the genius of the essay is that he's able to label Bruno Bauer's um, understanding of emancipation as political emancipation. And he's then, by that first sentence she read out, opens up the possibility that there are other kinds of emancipation and so he asks, what is it? What kind of emancipation do the Jewish people seek? Is it to be held out formally and legally as emancipated? Or is it actually to be emancipated? And engaging with Bruno Bauer in this essay, what Marx, um, what he's onto is that reforms that are centred on ideas and reforms that are led by legal reforms and legal changes, don't do the full work of emancipation or don't tap into deeper or richer notions of emancipation. His name is Peter Burden. He's associate professor at Adelaide Law School in Australia. And he joins us to talk about an article he wrote called On the Limits of Political Emancipation and Legal Rights. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm C.S. Song. The ideas of freedom and equality that you mentioned, the ideas and visions that are decreed or legislated by the state, what contrast did Marx draw between these ideas and the material realities of people's everyday lives? There's a lot to say on this, I think. And I guess where I want to begin is to make the point that Marx is critiquing political emancipation. But he knows and he appreciates and he says several times in the essay that political emancipation is a desirable thing. It's a good thing. It's a step in the right direction. It's much better than a situation where there is positive discrimination in the state and um, you're actively, um, your, your discrimination is actively sanctioned. So political emancipation is a step in the right direction. But it might be that what political emancipation does is enable the state to hold out that all of us are now free and equal. We're all free and equal in the eyes of the law. And when the state does that, it can create an abstraction from who we are and how we actually experience um, our lives. So at law, we're all free and equal, but in society, the powers of racism, which is you know, one of the things that he's concerned with is in this paper, um, but we could expand Marx and say powers of sexism, powers of homophobia, powers of class may not be challenged by an abstract statement that we're all free and equal. So one of the things Marx says, and it's provocative, is political emancipation can liberate the state. The state is no longer concerned with your identity in terms of your membership to the political community, but it may not help you. It may not be actually the kind of emancipation that you're seeking. And the state feigning neutrality to the question of your, your political identity could mean that the powers that course through civil society 
the powers that divide or mean that we experience inequality, the state feigning neutrality to them could actually sanction them simply by failing to address them. Interesting. So correct me if I'm wrong, the state in a sense washes its hands of, of the whole dirty affair when it declares via law or decree that, hey, people are equal, people are free. Exactly. So for Marx, political emancipation allows the state to create these abstractions and to liberate itself from being concerned with sites of oppression. But, you know, you and me or others are not necessarily freed from the power and the effect of, say, wealth or race or property um, in terms of how they operate in civil society. What Marx says is that those powers act after their own fashion. And the state purporting to be neutral to those powers is not actually neutral. It's an affirmation of the status quo. And those, those who are um, suffering from various kinds of oppression, be it on gender, race or class, are left to try to navigate those powers in civil society, but they have to do so in a way that's depoliticized. And if you're not succeeding, in, for example, in the same way other people are, then it makes it easier for um, the state or for others to say, well, your, your suffering is natural, or you know, the poor will always be with us, those sorts of statements, rather than being able to identify those powers of oppression in a political way. Let's talk about legal rights discourse. The discourse of legal rights in Marx's time, in Marx's opinion. So we have, and, and this still occurs today, right? People demand justice from the government and they say, uh, we deserve rights. We demand that you grant us rights. You need to come through for us. And sometimes, of course, these campaigns are successful. The state does concede or declare or both that this group or that has certain uh, legal rights. What does Marx think about the extent to which legal rights extend uh, to individuals on the one hand and to communities or to groups of people on the other? Yeah, so Marx offers a pretty blistering critique of rights in On the Jewish Question. And he does it again through this engagement he's having with Bruno Bauer. So against the notion of rights, Marx doesn't think that documents like the rights of man, which is you know a quasi-sacred document in his time, he doesn't think that the rights of man really has anything to do with um, humans being free and equal, which is, again, the kind of promise that constitutional democracies are holding out. In fact, Marx thinks that the dominance of rights reflects the fact that humans are not actually free. Um, Marx thinks that rights are tools that we use to defend ourselves against other people they're not powers that we have in common they're not about they're not a tool that helps us think about collective emancipation so there are i think there are five different kinds of rights that marx critiques in on the jewish question there's the right to liberty property equality and security so I won't, I mean, unless you want me to, I won't run through all of them, but Marx says, for example, that the right to liberty is, as it's understood in liberal terms, is the liberty of a man to be an isolated monad, right? So an isolated being separate from everyone else. So for Marx, liberty's not founded on social relations, or notions of connection and integration, it's about separation, you know, leave me alone, that's my right. But the other one that Marx really goes after is um, property, private property. He says that the right to private property is really the practical application of the right to liberty, 
which is the right of self-interest, the right to do what one wants. And that's, I mean, that's still how we think about property today. In law, the right to private property, everyone agrees, is three things. It's your right to use an object, it's your right to exclude someone else from using an object, and it's your right to um, destroy or sell your item of property. I mean, what's missing from that list is any sense of um, responsibility for your property or any sense of like communal social relations. So what Marx is critiquing here and, and what we have today are systems of private property where we in, empower people to set up private fiefdoms or blocks of property which they exercise individualistically, um, each you know, with their own little um, decision-making power. And there's no compulsion in the exercise of private property to use it in a way that is consistent or respectful of your community, let alone the ecosystem upon which blocks of private property are planted. Um, and there are other kinds of rights that Marx goes after, such as equality and security. But you can probably get a sense that he views the rights of man as about establishing the individual, an individual who's withdrawn into himself and is only preoccupied with their individual private interests. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. Peter Burden joins me, B-U-R-D-O-N. He teaches law at Adelaide Law School in Australia. His research interests include environmental theory, political theory, and legal education. His books include Hannah Arendt, Legal Theory and the Eichmann Trial, and Earth Jurisprudence, Private Property and the Environment. We're talking about an essay he wrote about Karl Marx's essay on the Jewish question. The article Peter wrote is called On the Limits of Political Emancipation and Legal Rights. You write in this essay that Marx's method in On the Jewish Question, this essay, is critique, that the essay is a demonstration of critique. By critique, do you mean the effort to take down or to reject someone else's argument? No, and that's, that's exactly how we usually use the word critique today. Um, it's trashing or, you know, it's sort of a feigning of trying to give um, helpful comment. And that's not what Marx means by critique. And actually, I think one of the most interesting, useful parts of the essay is just opening our eyes to a different meaning and a different practice of what critique is. So for Marx, critique is not trashing. It's not trying to like blow a bomb up on an idea. It's trying to understand the assumptions and the presuppositions that underlie a problem. So even though he's critiquing political emancipation in this essay, even though he's critiquing rights, the wrong response to that is to say he thinks they're crap and worth, worthless and better that we be in feudalism and have our, our political suffering designated in law. It's not what he's about at all. So in the essay... Um, and Marx's, I guess, his example of critique, what he's trying to reveal is the assumptions and presuppositions because he thinks that will help us um, bring a new world and new ideas into being. So young Marx, and we're encountering him at the age of 25. He's so young um, and he's got this progressivism about his, his thinking. He honestly thinks that critique will help reveal the world that is straining to come into being. So there's a, there's a really popular short letter called the Letter to Rouge, or it's sometimes called, quite modestly, for a ruthless critique of everything existing. And in that, in that paper, which was written just before on the Jewish question, he says, we do not anticipate the world with our dogma but instead attempt to discover the new world 
through the critique of the old. So what I love about that is, for one, he's absolutely trying to displace dogma. And everyone always thinks about Marx as being completely dogmatic. It's part of his bad PR. And there's probably not a lot we can do about that now. Um, but the other thing I really love about it is he's opening up a practice of critique that's not about trashing, that's not rejection, which is generative and which is generous and which is trying to take someone's ideas seriously and seeing what can we learn from engaging it and putting them under a different light. So if part of Marx's project, a big part of it, is to examine and understand what assumptions underlie a certain problem, um, what, what do you think he pointed to or could point to in terms of the fallacies, the fallacious presuppositions that undergirded Bruno Bauer's argument about, you know, Jews should assimilate and they should downplay uh, their religious status and just uh, try and become, you know, kind of ordinary citizens like everybody else. I mean, wh what 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 do you think he, he saw as the the assumptions that undergirded that that were problematic? So I think the, the most important assumption that Marx identifies in Bruno Bauer's work is that emancipation means political emancipation. And that's all. There's no other way we could think about emancipation. The other, and this is intimately connected with that. What Marx is able to identify in Bruno Bauer is an idealism. And there's a lot we could say about this, but by idealism, I don't mean, um, oh, how idealistic and quaint or anything like that. I mean, the limits of the German ideology and the dominant Hegelian school of thinking at the time. So Bruno Bauer is absolutely holding out the idea that political emancipation, which is a kind of politics which privileges ideas and legal reform, Bruno Bauer is holding out that that kind of emancipation is what moves history forward, what creates change. And Marx is going to take issue, not so much in this essay, but as he leaves this, he's going to increasingly take issue with idealism in that sense as a strategy for resolving political problems. Um, by the way, I mean, Bruno Bauer's notion of idealism, that it's ideas, changing ideas, or it's law reform, um, which is at the vanguard of change, super common today as well. So the idea that, um, or the notion that an idea whose time has come, or those sorts of efforts at reform which privilege ideas is a dominant strategy that people talk about politics today. And I would go a bit further, and maybe some of my legal colleagues would take issue with this, but I would say that legal research, which in and of itself privileges legal solutions to complex social problems, is usually an example of the idealism that Marx is critiquing in this essay. And it's also one of the assumptions or presuppositions that Bruno Bauer puts forward as part of his response to the Jewish question. And you've already begun talking about this, but if Marx rejects the idea that ideas, that the dominant ideas of an age drive history, and move the human world forward, what then does he believe can perform that function? So I guess the first thing to say is, at this point in Marx's career, he doesn't really know. As we encounter him here, he's not a communist. He's not necessarily a, an opponent of capitalism, although private property he critiques. 
He's not a historical materialist and he won't have developed any of that thinking yet. So um, he doesn't know what will lead to true or real human emancipation. He just knows that it's not reforms that are led by ideas and legal changes. And he's interested in the fact that states hold themselves out as delivering this outcome for people, but ultimately they can't. And so maybe the last thing I would say is, and this is one of the things that makes the essay hard to engage, is Marx, at the end of the day, is ultimately not really that interested in the Jewish question. He's probably in favour of Jewish emancipation. But really, he uses it as an opportunity to engage in critique and to try to answer the question, why is it that constitutional states cannot deliver on their promise to make us all free and equal? And to my mind, it's still the best essay that tries to grapple with that question. And Marx wrote it when he was 25. Yeah, and I'm reading from from your essay, and I'm just this just puts what you said in, in slightly different terms. You write, according to Marx, the state only deals with human subjects that are abstracted from their material lives. And then you cite Wendy Brown saying the state liberates its ideal of man and abandons actual man to the actual powers that construct Buffett and subject him. I'm joined by Peter Burden. He is Associate Professor and Deputy Dean of Law at Adelaide Law School in Australia. His books include Exploring Wild Law, The Philosophy of Earth Jurisprudence. He recently co-edited the volume From Environmental to Ecological Law. And he wrote an article called On the Limits of Political Emancipation and Legal Rights that appeared in the International Journal for the Semiotics of Law. We are talking about that article today. And I'm CS, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. So you not only offer an interpretation of Karl Marx's essay on the Jewish question, but you also apply his ideas, or his ideas as you interpret them, to two struggles, uh, two recent struggles in Australia. Uh, One is the identity-based struggle that involved an amendment to the Marriage Act of 1961 that would enable same-sex people to marry. And the second one has to do with the notion of environmental human rights, which emerged, I believe, in the 1970s. So this effort to to get this amendment passed in Australia that would enable a same-sex marriage what light can the on the Jewish question essay shed on on this struggle? Yeah, I wanted to give some some recent examples to try to give a sense of this is a a paper and a method of critique that is still really relevant and important for today. So, in Australia, as you said, the marriage equality legislation. It's probably worth just saying for your listeners that. In Australia, it was um, marriage equality became much later than in the United States and in, say, Catholic Ireland or you know anywhere. Like we were one of the last Western democracies to do it. It came um, as a product of sustained activism and really important activism. It's also, I think, if we could borrow Marx's terms again an example of political emancipation through the removal of an overtly discriminatory piece of or section of legislation. And it ought to be celebrated on those terms for um, both the activists who pushed the change, because it was certainly not going to be something that the government did off of its own back, and as an example of removing an overtly discriminatory part of our law. And I was moved to tears when it happened. A lot of my activist friends were as well. So we can celebrate it as an achievement of political emancipation. And at the same time as we do that, 
And this is again just using Marx's terms. We can know it's a step forward, but we also know that it doesn't change or necessarily even challenge those powers in civil society that perpetuate homophobia and limit certain kinds of access to the queer community. I mean, one of the things that happened directly after that legislation was passed, for example, in Australia, is the government continued their sustained attack on a safe schools program, which was about teaching young people around, around acceptance for gender binaries and different kinds of orientations. So in, a, in like the weeks that the marriage equality bill was passed, we had a very visceral example of how the powers of homophobia that are coursing through Australian society, or not just here, of course, um, how, they're not, how they weren't challenged by that example of political emancipation. Um, the marriage equality campaign, we could also, I think, quite easily see as an example of the limits of reform that puts law in the vanguard. And it is also, therefore, an example of the way law reflects this sort of ideal, German idealistic philosophy. And I also thought what was so fascinating was you could use Marx's essay to ask some critical questions. And these are questions which you could apply to any, so any issue, such as why did the question of marriage equality arise in the way that it did in the 20th century? And what did that say about our movements, their strength or not, um, to affect more radical demands? So, I mean, your listeners will be aware that the idea of marriage equality was not on the radar of activism in the 1970s. There were more radical justice claims that are being made. So, for example, justice claims around healthcare, um, the cessation of anti-gay violence, including violence within the police force, job discrimination, all kinds of demands which speak to a richer notion of emancipation, not just political emancipation. And there was also a lot of really pressing commentary in the press in Australia, um, I saw it in the United States as well, around um, of course, marriage equality being, in the end, a rather conservative demand, a demand that brings the queer community more formally into the structures of the state and also presents them as conservative or moral minorities. So those kinds of concerns were raised as well. That's the voice of Peter Burden, again, B-U-R-D-O-N, Associate Professor at Adelaide Law School in Australia. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm C.S. Song. You are the author of books like Earth Jurisprudence and Exploring Wild Law. You co-edited the volume From Environmental to Ecological Law. You investigate in this article that we're talking about whether Karl Marx's On the Jewish Question essay provides tools for critically engaging the notion of environmental human rights. That notion you write, emerged in 1972 following the UN Conference on the Human Environment. And in the interest of time, I'm going to say that the notion involves the idea that states have a duty to ensure that citizens have access to a safe, healthy, and sustainable environment. Well, that sounds logical and progressive. How prominent has environmental human rights and rights-based discourse more generally become to environmentalism, to mainstream environmental advocacy? Yeah, so this is something that's concerned me for a while now. Um, rights, be it environmental human rights, or notions of collective rights, or rights of nature, have become ubiquitous in environmental discussions. Um, I would almost say that it's become the dominant way in which justice claims are framed. It's almost the only game in town. So when you are trying to do high-level legal advocacy, 
it's almost entirely in the language of rights. And I mean, you mentioned Wendy Brown earlier. One of the arguments she's made is that rights crowd out other alternatives, other languages, other demands that we could make um, in order to protect the environment. And I think why that, that concerns me for a few reasons. I think rights don't challenge the underlying causes of environmental damage. So just like when Marx is saying rights of man create an abstraction between your lived experience and how you're presented at law, rights of nature documents or environmental human rights documents create exactly the same abstraction. You're supposed to have equal access, for example, to clean water and healthy air, um, but we know that there is massive class disparities in our ability to enjoy it. So there's an immediate abstraction that we notice in people's lived experience. We also know that rights and rights talk play very neatly into the tools of capitalism and capital accumulation. And if we just return for a moment back to the critique of rights that Marx gives in On the Jewish Question, he says, rights entrench notions of individualism and property. And so it hasn't taken a lot of creative imagination for environmental human rights and rights of nature to rather than actually help us protect the environment, to actually be put in service of individualism and corporate enterprise. So of course, one of the ways in which the third world have been encouraged to attain or achieve environmental human rights has been through partnerships with big business and corporations. So, and, and the ongoing effects, cumulative effects that's had on environmental harm has been evident. You write that environmental human rights can reinscribe or reinforce a subordinate status of the environment. It's subordination, the environment's subordination to human needs. Talk about that. So rights are a individualistic tool which are ultimately about competition or hierarchy. And with that comes a whole lot of things like what access do you have to enforce your right and have it held up? Um, and that doesn't change just because we're looking in the context of environmental human rights. And you see plenty of occasions where the right to a human to clean water comes into competition with an ecosystem need. So, for, for example, for water not to be taken. Where, where I am in South Australia or where you are in California, plenty of examples of scarcity of water because it's needed for either human use or it's used um, because of human gluttony for creating or agricultural products which are not environmentally friendly. When human needs or the needs of capital are put into competition with the need of an ecosystem or ecosystem service, the needs of the environment tend to be the one that becomes subordinate to human need. So environmental human rights maybe won't even lead to the protection of the environment because they're placed in a subordinate position to the needs of a human or the needs of capital accumulation. So Peter, you've, you've written this essay called On the Limits of Political Emancipation and Legal Rights. You've referred to your preferred emphasis, and certainly my preferred emphasis, on full human emancipation. What's your sense of the extent to which people even agree today on what emancipation means? We, we have all this talk about emancipatory politics, about reaching for societies that are more free and equal than 
today's societies, today's capitalist societies. What's your sense of uh, even whether people are on the same page in terms of what emancipation means or could mean? Mm, that's a great one. I feel like the question presupposes something, which is that we've ever had full agreement about those things or that some sort of full consensus is necessary. I think when Marx is writing about emancipation, he's got a sense of what it means here and he'll develop that. But the way he develops it is in unison with other people. And I think that's really important. So I think rather than having a sense that we have to have consensus about what emancipation means, I think there is some beauty in the messiness of there being competing notions. So Marx's comment, what kind of emancipation do we seek, could be a rainbow rather than one thing. And I like that because it's, it's diverse and there's strength in that diversity and it's better than the blackmail that we have today, which is that the only way we can articulate a justice claim or seek to improve our lot is either through abstract ideas of political emancipation or through rights. I mean, Samuel Moyne, for example, writes about rights being the last utopia, the thing that we um, all agree now is what we should be seeking because it doesn't fundamentally challenge the status quo. I think there's something quite beautiful about the idea of there being a rainbow of understandings of emancipation and people trying to fight for all of them and whatever that could be. Because um, we are diverse and we are different. One of the things though that we've lost, um, you know, in some cases we're trying to rebuild, are organised institutions through which those multiple senses of what emancipation means can be articulated and defined and recorded, if even for a moment. So, for example, the anti-colonial movement, um, there is a messiness about what emancipation means for sure, but there are structures for articulating a concept and most of those structures we struggle to preserve today. Um, and rights, and again, this is what Samuel Moyne writes about, rights come in at that moment as a way of displacing those richer notions of emancipation and this blackmail, that negative liberty is all that we can handle. If we, if we dare start talking about notions of positive liberty, everything will go to hell in a handbasket. I think the blackmail of those ideas are what we need to resist. And we need to be comfortable with there being a multiplicity of notions of emancipation that thrive and which different communities are seeking. And for there to be networks of solidarity within those groups of people fighting in unison as well. And what do you think of, of Marx's belief that certain problems such as real freedom and real equality cannot be resolved by capitalist states, cannot be resolved by liberal, not in terms of liberal or conservative, but the, the tradition of liberalism cannot be resolved by liberal states. Where, where I see this essay being really useful is in thinking about, do you think deeper notions of emancipation can be realized through a program of political emancipation and idealism. So can they be achieved at the level of ideas and legal reform? Or do you think for deeper notions of emancipation to be realized, you actually are required to change the material circumstances of how a society functions? And I myself fall in the latter camp. I think Marx, I was going to say beautifully, but I don't think it is a beautiful essay. I think it's a real struggle at times. 
But I think Marx really wonderfully captures um, the reasons why constitutional states can't fulfill their promise to treat us all free and equal. And I love this essay so much because he's so alive in it and he's struggling with trying to understand what could get us there. And as I've said, he doesn't know yet. But where he's going to go is developing a theory of historical materialism, which is really complicated, but, but which talks about the necessity of changing technology, changing relations to nature, changing the process of production, changing the way um, social life is produced and reproduced, changing social relations and mental conceptions. He's going to develop a theory of historical materialism, which really tries to give a sense of how full human emancipation can be achieved. And I'm on board for that project. I'm interested in it. And in thinking about that project as well, I think it would be um, a missed opportunity not to subject it to the same sorts of critique as Marx is, Marx is willing to do to his contemporaries in this essay. So I don't think it's a project we follow blindly either. Peter Burden, Associate Professor and Deputy Dean of Law at Adelaide Law School in South Australia. You might want to check out his books, Earth Jurisprudence, Private Property and the Environment, and Exploring Wild Law, the Philosophy of Earth Jurisprudence. We've been talking about an article he wrote called On the Limits of Political Emancipation and Legal Rights. Peter, thanks so much for your work and for joining us today. Thank you, CS. It's a real pleasure to be here. And this is CS, suggesting the important thing is not to stop questioning, and we hope you'll join us next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. You can visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio, resources, and more. You can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio, and you can follow us on Twitter at Radio Against. <laughs>